Okay, lovely people. It is one o'clock and we're about to start our webinar. Welcome. So welcome online um, to this, this um, event today, which is hosted by the Australian Alcohol and Other Drugs Council or AADC and Suicide Prevention Australia or SPA. Um, and it's going to provide you with a preview of findings on alcohol and other drugs and suicide in an upcoming report that's going to be published shortly by Suicide Prevention Australia. The event will also give you an opportunity um, to have a discussion with some panellists around the findings that are presented today and also to shape some of the draft recommendations that are con being considered to be included in the final report. So it's going to be quite interactive. Um, in terms of uh, housekeeping for an online event, um, just so you know, what the, the Q&A function will be where we want your questions to go, not the chat. We're disabling the chat. Please put your questions in Q&A. So before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people who are the traditional custodians of the land that I'm coming to you from here today in the ACT and acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands that everyone online today is coming from. We have over 200 people online today for this event. So that's a lot of different country. And I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians around Australia and also to welcome Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are with us for the event here today. In that context, I'd also like to acknowledge that it's National Reconciliation Week at the moment. And the theme for 2023 is be a voice for generations. Um, in that context, I'd also like to affirm AADC support for the voice to parliament. Um, I think that's something really important and ties in with the theme for this week as well. AADC is delighted to be partnering with Suicide Prevention Australia to raise awareness of and facilitate discussion on this important issue here today. We really appreciate Suicide Prevention Australia reaching out to the AADC and also to the alcohol and other drug sector more broadly in the development and finalisation of this important report. And we look forward to working closely with Suicide Prevention Australia on the implementation of the findings from this report and a range of other activities that are meaningful for both of our sectors going forward. So without further ado, I would like to introduce the CEO of Suicide Prevention Australia, Nevis Murray. Nevis is going to provide an introduction to the current work of Suicide Prevention Australia and particularly the upcoming report on the impact of key social and environmental determinants on suicide. So welcome, Nevis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mel. Uh, and thank you very much for your warm welcome. Thank you to all of you for uh, joining us today. As Mel said, I'm Nevis Murray, the Chief Executive at Suicide Prevention Australia. We're the national peak body for the suicide prevention sector with uh, over 370 members representing more than 140,000 employees, workers and volunteers across Australia. Our purpose is to provide a clear and collective voice for suicide prevention so that together we can save lives. And I have to tell you, this is a great collaboration with another very important part of the suicide prevention sector in alcohol and other drugs, uh, because we know that suicide is more than just about mental health. And I'm delighted that we're able to partner uh, with uh, agencies that uh, have a similar view to us, because together we are stronger. It's with pleasure that uh, I'm here with you today and uh, great to join you to shine a spotlight on the links between alcohol, other drugs and suicide. Before we start, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm on. Uh, I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and I pay my respects to Aboriginal uh, elders past and present and I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. I'd also like to acknowledge the unique and important understanding provided by people with a lived and living experience of suicide. Remember those that we've lost to suicide and acknowledge the suffering suicide brings when it touches our lives. The role of alcohol and other drugs in suicidal behaviour is an important topic. Sadly, the research shows that alcohol and other drug misuse can play a significant role in suicidal behaviour. We know that the severity of alcohol and other drug use heightens the risk of suicide and that chronic or acute use is common among suicide attempts and suicide deaths. Too many lives are lost to suicide each year. 
over 3,000 deaths by suicide occur and over 65,000 Australians make an attempt on their life every year. Suicide has a devastating impact and deeply affects families, friends and communities. At Suicide Prevention Australia, our ambition is a world without suicide. One of the driving forces that led to the creation of, the suicide, of suicide Prevention Australia 30 years ago was the growing recognition that suicide was about more than mental health. We know that suicide is a complex behaviour influenced by a broad range of factors. This recognition led to the development of our upcoming report, which examines the factors outside of mental illness, which play a role in suicide. The report will provide an overview of the evidence base linking the social and environmental determinants to suicidal behaviour and will include a chapter which will address the harms of alcohol and other drugs and links to suicide. The report will include advocacy information and key recommendations for government action outside the suicide prevention sector and outside of mental health to reduce the likelihood of suicide. And we'll share with you a preview of our findings of the role of alcohol and other drugs in suicidal behaviour. But I'd like to provide just some further background on the report. When we started working on this project, we quickly found that there was no authoritative list of social and environmental determinants of suicide. So we reviewed the literature and created a draft list of determinants. We then consulted members of our lived experience panel on what determinants should be addressed in the report and sought feedback on recommendations for government action. We also sought input from our member organisations and met with relevant organisations in other sectors to develop insights and to ensure that recommendations for government action reflect sector needs. To date, we've met with over 90 organisations and people with lived experience. From these discussions, we now have drafted a list of 21 determinants, including the determinant of harms, harms of alcohol and other drugs, which is the focus of today's session. We hope that you find today's presentation useful and that together we can raise awareness and generate momentum to reduce the harms caused by alcohol and other drugs, and in particular, the impact on suicide. Thanks, Mel. Thanks, Navis. Really appreciate your introduction. And I think that really sets the scene for what we're going to be talking about here today. I'd also like to point out that we're going to be talking about a lot of really intense issues here today. And if today's discussion raises any issues for anyone who's in the audience, please be aware that support is available. And we have included the contact details for Lifeline, the Suicide Callback Service, the National Alcohol and Other Drugs Hotline and Family Drug Support in the chat section. Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce Anne Leslie, who is the Senior Policy Advisor at Suicide Prevention Australia, who has been working on the upcoming report. And Anne's going to provide us with a sneak peek at the findings on alcohol and other drugs and suicide from the upcoming report and on the impact of social and emotional determinants on suicide that Nevis was just talking about. And Anne's also going to run us through some of the um, interim recommendations that we're going to have a chat about in the discussion section and see if we can help Suicide Prevention Australia to make those as meaningful as possible in the final report. So thanks, Anne. Please go ahead. Thank you, Mel. Uh, so my name is Anne Leslie and I'm a member of the policy team at Suicide Prevention Australia. It's a real privilege to be here with you today and to have the opportunity to present our findings on the links between alcohol, other drugs and suicide. A big thank you to the Australian Alcohol and Other Drugs Council for hosting today and to the experts on the panel for sharing their knowledge. I look forward to hearing from the panel shortly. Personally, this is a really important topic to me, which has had a huge impact on my own life. I lost my very much loved father to alcohol dependence. Sadly, he was living with severe depression and chronic suicidality. My mum said that dad drank alcohol to obliterate the awful feelings, while my dad said that alcohol was his medicine. I really believe that this topic has not been given enough attention and that there is an urgent need for government action in this space to prevent people from reaching the point of suicidal crisis. I really hope this is something that we can achieve. It has been fantastic to work with the team at Suicide Prevention Australia to look at the topic from both a policy and lived experience perspective. It is also really important to keep in mind that these things don't just exist out there. They may be affecting our neighbours, colleagues or friends. 
Understandably, this is quite an emotional topic for me and this may be for you too. So please do take some time out after the webinar if you need to look after yourself or reach out to a loved one or a support service. So this afternoon, I'm going to provide you with some background information on the report and discuss the evidence which shows that there is a link between alcohol, other drugs and suicide. I will also share a few recommendations that we will include in the report for government action to help prevent suicide. Please also keep in mind that this is only a sneak peek of our findings. So I want to take some time uh, to begin to discuss why we are working on the report and how we conceptualise the social and environmental determinants and landed on the determinant harms of alcohol and other drugs. So the idea for the project arose due to increasing rates of distress in the community and the conviction that we should focus on the broader factors which impact suicide. This way we can help people before they reach the point of suicidal crisis. So following a review of the literature, we identified that there is no clear list of broader factors which can impact suicide. So we set out to develop this list in consultation with people with lived experience and input from our members and relevant organisations. But we quickly encountered three major challenges. Number one, that the determinants were very interlinked, how to differentiate between life events and the determinants, and that the determinants can impact different groups of people in different ways, and how best to capture this in the report. So firstly, to address the challenge of the determinants being heavily interlinked and potentially overlapping, we took a pragmatic approach and categorised the determinants with aspects of the Australian service system. We believe that the approach will help direct the key recommendations for each determinant to the relevant area of government. Secondly, a distinction was also made between the determinants and life events. So we determined that a life event is a particular point in time and is a risk factor for suicide, while a determinant is an ongoing chronic experience or state. For example, we consider relationship breakup to be a life event, while relationship dysfunction is an ongoing state but we know that they are closely connected and that life events can be caused by a determinant or result in a determinant. A focus on life events would result in recommendations which targets people when they're experiencing a crisis. Instead, we wanna focus on helping people before they reach the point of suicidal crisis. So we focused on determinants. And this allows for upstream recommendations which targets those who are more likely to become at increased risk of suicidality. We also know that there are significant links between the determinants and priority population groups. Firstly, there are cohorts which are considered populations purely by virtue of experiencing a determinant. This includes, for example, those experiencing homelessness, and these cohorts are addressed by the determinants. There are also priority population groups which are populations in themselves. This includes, for example, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds who do not have equal access to high quality care or enjoy equal health outcomes with the broader population. So basically, the report will provide further detail and highlight the ways in which these priority populations experience the determinants and call for recommendations to be implemented with priority populations in mind. So in terms of the report, the initial list of 10 determinants has significantly expanded. And as Nevis has touched on earlier, we now have a draft list of 21 determinants. Importantly, the original determinant, addiction to alcohol and other drugs, has broadened to harms of alcohol and other drugs. It is important to recognise that harms from alcohol and other drugs extends beyond the physical and includes harms to others and impact on workplace productivity, for instance. I want to also acknowledge that the term other drugs also refers to pharmaceuticals, and both the medical use and non-medical use of drugs that are available, such as painkillers and sleeping pills. Research does show that prescribing practices can increase the risk of suicide. As an example, we have been informed that GPs can prescribe progabalin, which is a pain medication which has serious side effects, such as mood changes, the development of depression and suicidal thoughts. While patients prescribed progabalin should be warned and monitored for deterioration in mood, in practice, in practice, this does not always occur. It also needs to be kept in mind that medications such as antidepressants, which are designed to decrease the symptoms of depression, can occasionally have the opposite effect and can increase suicidal thoughts and actions. I also want to emphasise that when we talk about alcohol and other drugs and links to suicide, we're referring to harmful use or use which is problematic or risky. 
I'm going to read out a comment from one of our lived experience members, which highlights that we need to keep in mind that we are not demonising alcohol and other drug use. We are specifically talking about harmful use. So they said, men need opportunities to get together and socialise. If you go out for a nice glass of wine over dinner, this is seen as acceptable by society. Yet we demonise men who want to catch up with their mates after work for a couple of beers. Men are discouraged from catching up as meeting up with mates over a beer or two is viewed as a negative. So I think the comment encourages us to think about cultural and social influences and gender differences in public and private drinking contexts. The comment also emphasises that alcohol can play an important role in social cohesion. So research by the University of Oxford has also found that moderate alcohol consumption is in fact linked to improved wellbeing as it can encourage social interaction with friends. Another key issue that we plan to explore in the report is that people with a substance use disorder or those who use alcohol or drugs in a harmful way continue to experience stigma and discrimination. During discussions with a person with lived experience, it was emphasised that stigma can not only stop people from seeking help, but can also cause feelings of shame, which can increase the risk of suicide. I'll read out another comment from a person with lived experience, uh, which will be published in the report, uh, which highlights the impact of stigma. I was an injecting drug user, which carries a lot of stigma. I am unable to donate blood and was pushed away and isolated from society because of my drug use. It makes you feel alienated. As an educated Anglo-straight bloke, I feel that I am not a stigma magnet. Yet because of my past drug use, I have been treated differently and have faced discrimination. My past actions have followed me. So unfortunately, we heard a lot that people who use alcohol or other drugs can be socially perceived as persons incapable of self-control, basically who are responsible for their own behaviour. This stigma and discrimination can come not only from that person's family, but also from other segments of society, including from healthcare service providers. Stigma can also prevent family or friends from getting help or talking about the distress they may be feeling. In respect to families, living with someone who has a substance use disorder or who uses alcohol or other drugs in a problematic way can also lead to isolation. Children may not invite their friends over as they may be embarrassed about their parents' or siblings' behaviour. This can culminate in isolation, which can lead to an increased risk of suicide as we know that positive relationships are a strong protective factor against suicide. Now I'd like to read out another comment by a person with lived experience, which I think highlights the impact of alcohol and drug use on families. Now this is a really powerful comment. Intergenerational trauma is passed down through families. My father was in the second world war and he came back a different person. He drank heavily due to PTSD to cope with what happened. He did not talk about it, but his behaviour affected the family. It is similar to having one parent murdered. It is traumatic and feeds onto the next generation and has a long-term influence in people's lives. So what I think this comment really shows is that relatives or friends can experience severe trauma or develop unhealthy coping mechanisms in response to a family member's use of alcohol and other drugs. Uh, one of the studies that we came across found that if a parent is dependent on either alcohol or other drugs, that the child's risk of attempting suicide doubles. While another study found that frequent opioid use by a parent doubles the risk of suicidal behaviour by their children. So I'd now like to turn to the broader evidence. And we found that for the individual, the relationship between alcohol, other drugs and suicide is complex. I also want to emphasise that the research shows that there is an association and that not everyone impacted, so the individual, family, friends, loved ones or broader community will experience thoughts about suicide. But in terms of the association, we do know that experiencing suicidal thoughts can lead to risky and problematic alcohol and other drug use to manage difficult life circumstances and distressing thoughts and emotions. We also know that people can use alcohol and other drugs as self-medication to cope with trauma. According to the self-medication hypothesis of substance use, people can develop substance use problems in an attempt to manage distress associated with the effects of trauma exposure and traumatic, traumatic stress symptoms. 
Sadly, published data suggests that PTSD can precede substance use and dependence. And in particular, research suggests that up to 59% of young people with PTSD develop substance use issues. We also know that people can use alcohol or other drugs in risky or problematic ways in response to experiencing the broader determinants, such as job insecurity, financial challenges, or domestic violence. These broader factors increase suicide risk themselves. The research also shows that people who have a substance use disorder are much more likely to have a co-occurring mental health disorder, and this can also increase suicide risk. So as you can see, there are several theories which have been proposed as to why there is, is an association between alcohol and other drug use and suicide. So chronic alcohol and other drug use may exacerbate the person's psychological distress and in turn increase the likelihood that they'll engage in suicidal behaviours. People may feel helpless because of a dependence and feel that there is no way forward, leading to thoughts of suicide. Unfortunately, the research shows that people living with alcohol dependence may be up to 10 times more likely to die by suicide compared to the broader population. Several studies have also established that acute alcohol intoxication may lead to reduced inhibitions and an increase in impulsivity, making it more likely to, that a person will act on suicidal thoughts. So basically the research suggests that intoxication may facilitate a person's transition from suicidal thoughts to suicidal behaviour. An international study which included data from Australia found that up to 44% of people who present to emergency departments after a suicide attempt have acute alcohol intoxication. And unfortunately, higher levels of intoxication are associated with an even greater increase in risk of suicide attempt. In 2020, an evidence check commissioned through the Suicide Prevention Research Fund found that problematic alcohol and other drug use is consistently associated with increased risk of suicide and that it is one of the strongest predictors of suicidal thoughts and behaviours. The report indicated that adolescence and young adulthood is a critical risk period for suicide as alcohol and other drug use and binge drinking behaviour and suicidality often emerge for the first time during this period. We also know that people can intentionally overdose. However, it is very difficult to distinguish between accidental and intentional overdoses. However, a study examined 4,500 drug overdose deaths, presentations to an emergency department in the United States. It found 39% of those whose most serious overdose involved an opioid or sedative reported that they wanted to die or did not care about the risks. The study found that another 15% were unsure of their intentions. So in summary, what we found is that the role of alcohol and other drugs in suicide is complex and that there is often an interaction with other risk factors of suicide. So now I'm going to discuss a couple of recommendations for government action to help prevent suicide. Firstly, we think it is extremely important that a trauma-informed approach is taken. While we know that many services out there are passionate about this approach, unfortunately, too many people receive care which is harmful. All professionals must ensure people feel safe and not re-traumatised by their care. There should be trust and collaboration. This is not simply asking professionals to be nicer and compassionate, although this is important. We want a fundamental shift in culture. The government should fund trauma-informed training and professional development for all frontline staff who are in contact with people impacted by alcohol or other drug-related harms. Implementing a trauma-informed approach requires organisational policy change at the provider level. It involves organisational and clinical practices that recognise the complex impact trauma has on both patients and providers. We believe that trauma-informed care will also help change negative attitudes. So previous research conducted in 2018 found that in Melbourne, one in four patients at the St Vincent's Hospital Emergency Department on weekends are there because of harmful alcohol consumption. We know that when people turn up at the emergency department seeking care, that they can be treated disrespectfully and with disdain. There can be the assumption that people affected by alcohol or other drugs have made poor decisions or that it is a lifestyle choice. This poor treatment can be extended out to family, carers or friends. So working in a trauma-informed way means recognising the strengths of people and supporting their resilience in recovery instead of shaming and blame, which leads to feelings of I'm a bad person and heightened suicide risk. 
We also want the government to significantly improve access to alcohol and other drug treatment services. We urgently need more capacity and a lack of funding in this area is a huge problem. While the recent funding boost in the federal budget was a big step forward, we are aware that there are people across Australia that do not have access to treatment services. This isn't good enough and needs to be addressed. It can be expensive to access care and this is a major barrier to access. People may also be unable to access culturally appropriate services. We also know that living in remote regional and rural areas can often mean being geographically isolated from specialist services. A person with lived experience told us that in their regional area, there was simply no services available, just none. So there needs to be national coordination between all states and territories and a national cabinet framework to ensure that there is an equitable distribution of services across Australia and that there is sufficient funding to grow alcohol and other drug treatment services to meet demand. While funding is really important, there does need to be adequate planning and a coordinated strategy. So this requires that federal, state and territory governments work together to ensure that people can access the right type of care when they need it. So this does bring me to the end of the sneak peeks of findings from our report, but we are always listening and very much open to feedback. So please do get in touch if you have any additional thoughts after today's forum and discussion. My email address will be made available in the chat. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from the panel. Thank you. Thanks so much, Anne. That was a wonderful presentation. And we feel very privileged to have um to have had that sneak peek of um of the results and findings that we've got. And also very privileged to um, be able to have this session that we're now gonna have to provide input into the recommendations that are included in the report. I think it's important to note the, the very strong alignment um, between the, the draft recommendations that you talked about, Anne, and the strategic policy priorities that are outlined in AADC's um, strategic plan, notably around um, funding and capacity for the sector, the need for a national governance framework for the sector to enable policy and planning between states and territories in the sector, and also around those workforce development priorities as well. So it's really great to see a report that is listening to the needs of the AOD and mental health sectors more broadly and incorporating those broader priorities as well. And just reminding everyone um, that today's discussion is going to continue to be a little bit intense, and we do have in the chat um, some contact details for support services, Lifeline, the Suicide Callback Service, the National Alcohol and Other Drugs Hotline and Family Drug Support. We also have Anne's email address um, because, as we've said, this was a sneak peek of findings and the report and the recommendations are still being finalised. So if you don't get to have your two bobs worth at today's event, you can certainly have a conversation with Anne offline um, and provide your feedback that way as well. I'd also like to thank Anne for talking about her own lived experience, because I think a lot of people who are online today will have some lived experience as well. And it's, it's so important to know that the work that our organisations are doing is centred and underpinned by that lived experience perspective too. So thank you, Anne. Now, if I can get all the other panellists to turn on their microphones and cameras at this stage, and I will introduce you all. Okay, so we have joining us, Nevis and Anne are back. Um, the audience will remember Nevis and Anne from their recent presentations. But we have a range of other um, people who are joining us who bring a range of perspectives from the sector. We have Professor Michael Farrell, who is the Director of the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre. And Michael's joined by Rhea Hopkins, who's a current PhD and candidate at NDARC. Rhea's undertaking particular research looking at the pain management link here and prescription medications. So we wanted to include her perspective as well. We have Dr. Rose Crossan, who is a senior lecturer with the Department of Population Health at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Um, many of you will remember Rose from when she previously lived on this side of the ditch, but Rose is coming back to us today to provide some perspectives from New Zealand. So thanks for coming, Rose. We've also got Sam Biondo, who's the Executive Officer of the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association. 
Sam has been in that role for many years and is now on his countdown to Christmas retiring from that role. So we really wanted to have the opportunity to pick Sam's brains. The link between alcohol and other drugs and suicide has long been a passion for Sam and his work. So thanks, Sam, for joining us today. Sam is joined by Gillian Clark, who's also from VADA, who is the mental health reform lead with VADA at the moment. And many of you will know that there's a lot of work going on in Victoria at the moment um, and funding about the connection between alcohol and other drugs and mental health. So Gillian's here to talk to us about that. Gillian also brings her perspective as a clinician in the field. And we also have Paul DeSauer, who is the CEO of Peer-Based Harm Reduction WA. Um, Paul is a repository of a great deal of knowledge and is also a former board member for me in a, in a past working life. So it's always wonderful, Paul, to have you on board and to bring your perspective here today and to have the perspective of peer-based drug user organisations brought to the table in this conversation. So thank you for coming. Um, what I might do, I noticed there's some questions coming in in the Q&A section. Please remember that we do want your questions in the question and answer session, section, not in the chat section. Um, so we have a few coming in, but I'm just going to ask the panel to provide their perspectives um, on the findings that Anne's presented and the recommendations before we start to take some of the questions from the floor. So in terms of where everyone's sitting on my screen in front of me, um, I'm going to go clockwise. So Michael, Michael Farrell, you are sitting in my top left-hand corner. Would you like to respond firstly to the findings that Anne's presented and the recommendations that Suicide Prevention Australia is considering for inclusion? Yeah, sure. First of all, could I congratulate Anne for the amazing presentation and the very important work and also commiserations on your on direct experience. But I think you bring it alive. And I think the theme here, particularly around alcohol and other drugs, but particularly the focus on alcohol, we know clearly that uh, from work over the last 30 years that the amount of alcohol consumed in the country correlates with the suicide rate in the country. So there's a really direct concentration before you get down to the individual level. And Anne has really made out the thing about the complexity of this. This is not a simple issue. This is a, you know, it affects things across many ways and understanding that complexity, but also understanding the stigmatization and the important role of stigmatization in making people vulnerable. And the fact of the matter is that within the alcohol and drug field, there hasn't been enough of inroads in uh, pushing back on stigmatization. So congratulations and thanks very much, Anne. Thanks, Michael. I note also before I go to Sam that some of the stats that Anne was throwing out in her um, presentation just then correlate very closely with NDARC's recent report on drug-induced deaths as well. That 70-30 split between unintentional and intentional deaths I think was mirrored in the findings that Anne was presenting as well. So I think that's really interesting too. Sam, I might throw to you next um, with that in mind and also some of the, um, the stats that Anne presented in terms of suicide attempts and alcohol intoxication. I think it was 44% um, in that instance linked between suicide presents, um, presentations at hospital and alcohol intoxication. I know this is something you've been interested in for a long time. What thoughts came to mind for you um, from Anne's presentation? I think that the, the the data has to be unstitched. Uh, the the problem lies across a whole range of areas. I think the report actually, and, and what uh, was presented uh, by Anne, highlights that uh, the de the social determinants uh, lie across a whole range of areas. Therefore, to deal with this issue, we need to actually start to focus our efforts across a whole range of things. It's it's like the the whole of life approach. Um, what do you do about people that are isolated in rural regional communities, Aboriginal communities? The suicide rate out there is enormous. Uh, the data that we see on a daily basis in the AOD space and the connection between AOD and, and, and suicide is, is becoming very clear. Yet there's a bypass of 
of financial support into other systems, such as the mental health system, which sometimes isn't appropriately set up to deal with this issue because of a, a seemingly diagnosed treat and at the door approach, we're much more trauma informed to care, um, trauma informed in the approach we take, and I think it's appropriate to have that focus clearly identified. And what Anne spoke about, uh, I think it's heading very much in the right directions from what I heard. Um, but the solutions lie across a whole range of areas, from schools to uh, adolescent to key points in people's lives uh, to people who are using alcohol. I should say the role of policy, government policy is not to be uh, uh, avoided here. Sometimes some of this policy creates much more harm than uh, we had originally. If you look at uh, gambling, if you look at the connection between gambling and alcohol and pokies and alcohol and gambling and the interplay and those intersections, I think it's it's really uh, good that the... Um, this report has taken that into account. Thanks, Sam. Nevis, I might throw to you now, um, just in terms of your broader view in relation to Suicide Prevention Australia's work going forward and how we can, I guess, work together as organisations around the implementation of the recommendations in this report. How do you see um, some of the findings that you're getting out of this report influencing the work of your organisation going forward? Yeah, great question, Mel. I think the, um, the thing that's exercising my mind most at the moment is the 21 determinants um, because, um, you know, how do you, how do you eat the elephant when there's 21 determinants? Um, and so for me, that um, that's certainly something that internally we'll, we'll be discussing. And, and obviously these collaborations, these consultations Will help inform um, how we prioritise our advocacy moving forward. But I think, as I said um, at the at the front end of the session, one of the key things is that we speak with one voice, that we find the points of advocacy that we can advocate on together, um, because that's when we create clarity for governments to invest um, outside of the traditional silos of you know alcohol and other drugs over here and you know family law over there and 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 we know that it's that joint up system that we need if we're going to genuinely address the issue of suicide and I know it's not just issues of suicide but clearly that's what drives us um, and certainly you know putting putting scaffolds around um, the way governments make decisions to ensure that it's a joint up system um, is is I think paramount if we're going to make um, a positive impact on reducing suicides. But without question, alcohol and other drugs is um, right at the top of that list because we've seen through the data that it's one of the the um, the, the highest criteria or highest contributors to um, death by suicide. So it's um, uh, a really important conversation that we're having here. And if you can help us reduce the 21 to something smaller, um, it would be great because I, I'm not sure that we can address 21 um, determinants uh, with the same level of vigour. We're going to have to prioritise, and clearly we're prioritising alcohol and other drugs because we know um, the, uh, the, the uh, prevalence of alcohol and other drugs in death by suicide. Um, so it will remain a priority, but um, yeah, how we tackle the rest is another another matter. I'm going to put a pin in that one because we've got a question coming in from the audience about um, do we have a list of the 21 determinants that we can access with a view to having that conversation. I'm just going to put a pin in that though while we continue to go around the circle here. Rose, I'd like to call on you, mate. Um, Rose Crossan is coming to us from the University of Otago in New Zealand, but was previously with the Pennington Institute in Australia. Rose, I might actually ask you to speak with a couple of hats. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, some of the insights you bring from New Zealand in terms of that linkage between alcohol and suicide and particularly First Nation communities over there? And I'm wondering if you might also want to comment on the pregabalin issue, because I knew that was something you had a background in when you were working over here, and that was something that Anne touched on in her presentation as well. So sorry to give you two there, mate, but... Um, no worries. Um, so 
In relation to New Zealand, so New Zealand has a very high suicide rate um, and it also has um, substantial inequities in its suicide rate. So unfortunately, New Zealand still has the highest uh, youth suicide rate in the OECD and our Indigenous peoples, uh, Māori, um, have significantly higher suicide rates and significantly higher rates of alcohol-related harm. And this is due to a whole, um, a, a range of reasons, including uh, experiences of colonisation and intergenerational trauma uh, and stigmatisation, and also environmental factors that uh, areas and neighbourhoods with higher proportions of Māori population also have higher alcohol outlet density. So I've been leading a research project looking at the association between alcohol and suicide in New Zealand and found that there is a significant association both um, at a distal and proximal level. And what we've been advocating for out of this is for, uh, is for alcohol law reform that our the, the alcohol environment that New Zealand has is a result of policy choices that have been made. And I completely agree with what Michael said about the correlation between alcohol consumption and suicide rates. This is something that governments can change, that the New we want the New Zealand government to change and that New Zealand communities want the government to change. And yet we don't see much change at all. Um, so we really are highlighting that taking act, that regulating alcohol better is a form of suicide prevention in New Zealand. Uh, in terms of the pregabalin issue, gosh, um, making me think back a few years now, um, I, I think it's just highlighting the, the complexity in this space and that um, that there has been obviously a desire to change prescribing practices in relation to opioids. However, some of the drugs that are being prescribed in to spare opioids, such as pregabalin, have also been independently associated with new onset suicidal thinking and behavior. And so it's really important that we monitor those trends and understand um, how they're impacting people at a population level, but also, as Anne said, to, to, to be able to screen people and monitor them clinically as they're going, as they're starting to take those drugs um, to make sure that there's not a new onset um, depression or suicidal thinking or worsening. Thank you. No, I think that's a really important point. And vibing off that, I might throw to Rhea next, given the work that she's currently leading for NDARC in terms of looking at pain management and some of those prescription medications. Rhea, do you want to just vibe off some of what Rose said and also give your thoughts on Anne's presentation? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, thank you, Anne, for such a great presentation. And I think what really struck me is just how interlinked so many of these determinants, life events and issues are. Uh, so my area is chronic pain, um, which is a, a huge public health problem. So one in five Australians experiences chronic pain and at least a third of those will experience pain that is moderately to severely disabling and limiting. Um, and a lot of, there's, there's a huge amount of overlap between chronic pain and depression and anxiety and isolation. Um, so a lot of my research has, has looked at people who are prescribed opioids, but obviously we've seen massive increases in prescribing in the last few decades, though that is starting to plateau and decrease. Um, but some of the responses to that and some of the, the policies and the restrictions um, may also be associated with harms themselves. And that's the area that I'm really interested in. So Rose mentioned um, this sort of shift to other medicines that um, are seen as opioid sparing, but actually carry their own risks and harms and, and also aren't always used in line with the evidence. So many people prescribed pregabalin, which is uh, indicated for nerve pain, don't actually have nerve pain. Um, and we've also seen evidence from the US that opioid cessation and reductions may actually be associated with increases in suicide, um, drug overdose and diversion to illicit opioids. Um, so yeah, it's a really a space that um, needs a lot of attention. I think sometimes these policies are, are put in place and then we realize what the impact is of those later on down the track. Um, but the overlap is huge between uh, mental health comorbidities and chronic pain. Um, and yeah, it's great to see these determinants sort of 
being brought into the light. Thanks, Rhea. Paul, I feel like you might have a bit to add to what Rhea's just said there as well in terms of responding to Anne's findings. Thanks, Mel. I actually feel like I've got a bit to add to everything everyone's said so far. Um, I guess it's really important to reinforce what's been said several times. You know, these are complex issues and the, the social and economic determinants underlying these outcomes are complex. And the systems we have that address these issues are very much siloed and focused on you know, narrow streams of interventions rather than broader ones. Um, there's um, there's uh, the, the coin was turned in the US um, in, in 2015, deaths of despair, to describe an increase in deaths um, which are related to alcohol-induced liver disease, related to accidental illicit drug overdose, and related to um, suicide, whether, uh, including you know, deliberate drug overdose. And um, these three things are interrelated. And I think the relationships between them are quite complex. People take psychoactive drugs for a reason. Um, psychoactive drugs make you feel different. They, they change the way you feel and think. And people who are experiencing a lot of difficulty in their lives uh, may end up resorting to using drugs chronically and becoming dependent on them as a way of coping with those difficulties. And quite often what we're talking about is, is dealing with um, disadvantage and trauma, that we're dealing with physical pain or emotional pain. And um, in, the, in the US, these, there has been some research around the, the social and economic determinants of these deaths of despair. Um, we're not talking about insignificant things. We're talking about over a 10 year period in the US, um, um, alcohol related deaths increasing about 37%, accidental overdoses increasing nearly 100%. And, um, and suicide increasing 170% between 2009 2018. Um, <clears throat> something that hasn't been, uh, and the, the research around that shows that things like housing insecurity, economic insecurity are heavily associated with deaths related to these causes. And um, I think there are lessons to learn from the experience in the US and Canada. Um, the, the situation is very different here. But you know, when our um, when our basic unemployment benefit has been less than the poverty line for more than a decade, you know that is creating stress on people, uh, which is, leads to more of these sorts of outcomes. Um, so welfare, housing, and pain management, and just just picking up on what Ria has mentioned, um, the experience in the US and Canada, while these things have been increasing, there's also been this attempt to um, reduce prescription opioid-related overdoses, and that has um, reduced opioid prescription by about 25%. The number of um, opioid-related deaths in the US that are, that are attributed to prescription opioids has largely plateaued since uh, 2012 or 2013, but the, the number of um, illicit opioid-related deaths has more than doubled, and it's this displacement um, from prescribed drugs um, uh, to, to illicit ones. And it's something I've been seeing in my work increasingly for more than the last decade as Australia's um, uh, prescribing guidelines have changed. In the US, when they introduced prescription monitoring, like live real-time prescription monitoring, they saw a significant increase in mental health emergencies, in um, overdoses and suicide um, amongst people who had been prescribed opioids chronically. And I've um, probably seen half a dozen cases in the last three years of people I've worked with for many years um, choosing to end their life in this context of, you know, they've been prescribed opioids for a decade or more and it's suddenly withdrawn very abruptly. So it's not just about what medications we're prescribing to replace the opioids. It's about managing these um, legacy patients. There are people who've been maintained on high doses of opioids for decades and all of a sudden they've been referred to a pain management clinic or their prescriber has gotten a letter from their local health department and they've been cut off abruptly. Um, that this is iatrogenic harm. This is actually caused by our prescribing practices. And if you've been prescribing someone powerful long-acting opioids for long periods of time and you decide it's not appropriate anymore, then you should be managing that transition and that withdrawal very, very gently, um, not in the way that we're seeing it happen. 
Thanks, Paul. I think that's an important point too. Jill, Gillian, it's just up to your turn before we go to questions from the audience. Um, it's a hard gig to go after all of those other people, but from, from your perspective, being the mental health reform lead there in Victoria at the moment and also being a clinician, what would you like to add to what's been said already? Well, first of all, thanks, Melody, and thanks um, for the efforts that have been put together to bring this uh, issue to the fore because it's alive and well in Victoria and I think my first reflection of many is that the complexity of this issue has just been reflected in the last 15 minutes of panel discussion is there's so many different ways that you can look at tackling the issue of uh, suicide and really, I guess, enhancing this. I like to think of it as like a, a community responsibility to the prevention of suicide, which is really an umbrella approach that it sits across everybody in the community's responsibility. The other thing is, I think, as people were talking, I was thinking about the AAD sector's, I guess, capability and strengths in being able to support suicide prevention as well. And something that we are regularly advocating for in Victoria in mental health reform is things like the fact that our AAD sector is a biopsychosocial approach. So it really helps to look and I guess take into account those um, psychosocial determinants of health but it also then has, you know, some of those elements of the trauma-informed approach. It's taking, meeting people where they're at. It's more welcoming, less judgmental, you know, that whole issue of stigma um, is hopefully minimised um, when people are presenting for AOD treatment if we compare that to traditional clinical mental health settings. So there's actually a wealth of, uh, I guess, a strength in what our sector can provide that doesn't need to be built up over generations but is currently there and it's you know working with the people that we see anyway so that it's not like a new cohort that we're seeing these are the people that we work with every day the only other thing I guess I'll add to that thinking of time is really being able to dig deeper into some of the understandings and relationships when it comes to uh, substance use and suicidal ideation or suicide attempts. And particularly that stat about the 44% in ED, um, really trying to break apart that idea that not all people that um, are contemplating suicide will necessarily have a substance dependence, but rather may have a point in time intoxication, maybe reacting to um, a social stressor and those things that were spoken about before the very beginning of Anne's presentation about the determinants and life events distinction. Because when it comes to addressing AOD um, needs in the context of suicide prevention, we need to think of it along a spectrum to uh, ensure that we can have a policy framework that allows for better, I guess, regulation of substance use to prevent um, some of those incidental or accidental overdoses that may be due to life distress. But we also need the other end, which is the treatment um, paradigm to be able to say, well, if you're struggling with your substance dependence, um, you're going to get a wraparound service that provides you everything that you need um, from the right people that understand addiction. So, yeah, that, that's my final comment because I know you're running out of time. <laughs> I think that's great, Gillian, and that goes to a couple of the questions that we've actually had come in. Um, just going to do a little bit of housekeeping on some of these questions. So Bill Gransby has asked, do you have a list of the 21 determinants that I can access? We're going to post that list in the chat for you, Bill. Um, a few people have asked that question. Um, one for you, Anne, here around consultation with First Nations people and organisations for the development of the report. Yes, we did um, undertake consultations with First Nations organisations and we will definitely include intersections with priority populations and we've got their feedback on what recommendations uh, should be included. But uh, unfortunately, due to time constraints, we, we didn't cover that today, but that's definitely a priority for us. 
Thanks, Anne. And I think the next one's probably either for you or Nevis. Um, great work on this important issue, says Craig Martin. As the report acknowledges, there's a strong overlap of shared risk and protective factors between AOD and suicide, highlighting the critical importance of preventing these harms. Um, and that's where he's going with this question in terms of prevention. It doesn't sound like there's a specific recommendation or priority in relation to prevention, or did he miss that? And do you have any information on that? So once again, without a recommendation, we've only covered a couple that there's definitely going to be more and more included, but we, we do also want to ensure that it, it's kept very broad with our recommendations. But if you have any suggestions on anything that you think should be included in regards to prevention, please definitely do get in touch. Thank you. And I think that's the message I wanted you to say there is that's exactly why we've posted your email address in the chat, um, because if people do have feelings about things that should be included in the recommendations, here is your time. Um, that said, I think the workforce um, recommendation in relation to trauma-informed care does go to secondary and tertiary prevention as well. There's a question here from Sally Underdown. Is Anne able to clarify how harmful, risky or problematic use was defined? And perhaps the panel also flag any risks they see in framing use in this way when seeking to prevent harms. So in terms of the different types of descriptions you used in terms of dependence and problematic drug and alcohol use, I'll throw to you Anne first. And then Paul, I might ask you to comment a little bit further on that too. Uh, that's a fantastic question, and I found this one very difficult myself. Um, personally, having a lived experience and the terminology used, we don't want it to be harmful or increase discrimination. So our language is really um, drawn from consultations with people and organisations. But once again, if you have any feedback to make sure that the language we use isn't harmful, we're all ears. But it would be yeah great to hear from the panel their thoughts. Paul, you first, I think. Okay, um, I, I think um, it might have been Anne earlier on who highlighted the fact that you know when when people feel stigmatised that um, they they're less likely to access services, they're less likely to reach out for help. Um, there is a lot of um, there is a lot of stigma and shame around the subject of suicidality. There is a lot of stigma and shame around substance use and particularly around illicit substance use and, and dependent substance use. Um, and we know that people who are identifiable as people using drugs, you know, routinely encounter um, discriminatory attitudes when they engage with health services, when they engage with social welfare services. You know, this discourages people from seeking help. And I think the way that um, the way that politicians and the media by and large discuss drug and alcohol issues adds to this and it does two things that it makes the people who are using drugs potentially um, internalize some of that judgment it makes them reluctant to seek help and reluctant to put their hand up we know that um, in australia we've got research that shows that the lag time lag between someone identifying for themselves that they're having problems related to methamphetamine use and them actually seeking professional help is about seven years. That's just astronomical. Seven years struggling knowing that you've got an issue but trying to deal with it yourself. Okay. Um, but the other thing this does is it, it misinforms and, and alarms the broader community as well. You know, so if if, if, um, if you're if you are using methamphetamine, if you're using ice, which has you know been demonized very heavily in our media for more than a decade, the first thing that happens when you fess up and tell a family member that that's what you're doing is they're scared to death and they, and they think they've got this hopeless situation to deal with. Um, we need to change the way these issues are framed in public discourse. We need to try and make sure that we have um, better representation of these issues in media. And I'd, I'd really like to find a way to stop these issues being used as a political football because that's what we see every election cycle. It's, um, People, people seeking votes by playing off these issues. Awesome. Thank you, Paul, for that. Ria, I think you wanted to have a quick comment on that one as well. Yeah, I just wanted to um, add to, to what Paul has said and what Anne has said about 
stigma and language um, and discourse, particularly with um, the people I speak to who have chronic pain, who have been prescribed opioids, you know, they, they tell me about reading articles about the opioid epidemic and some of these terms that we've sort of imported from America, uh, so to speak. And, and there's a lot of terms, you know, problematic use, misuse, abuse, um, and opioids themselves, prescribed opioids have become somewhat stigmatized and uh, seen as problematic. And a lot of people with chronic pain have felt that label be transferred to themselves as you're a person with chronic pain on opioids. You know, I had a, a qualitative research participant tell me, if you're a person with chronic pain, you're problematic. Uh, so I think it's something to be aware of um, more broadly. And, you know, the, the stigma certainly bleeds into these. Thanks, Rhea. Um, we've got time, I think, if we crank it up for two more questions, one of which is going to be really quick because a number of people have asked when the report's going to come out. Anne, you got an ETA on the report's release, yeah? So we're hoping to release it during the 2023-2024 financial year, fingers crossed by the end of this year, because it's an important piece of work, so we're hoping to get it out pronto. Excellent. Thank you. One more quick one from Emily Fay. Is there any data findings so far on the impacts of the pandemic and the link with suicide, i.e. has prevalence of suicide increased since 2020? And do you want to have a go at that one? I can, I'm off, I'm off. Oh, Nevis, go yeah. for it. Um, it's interesting, there has been no increase in suicide in the last set of data that was released at the end of last year. Uh, but that was what uh, we would have expected given the amount of uh, protective factors that were put in place by the previous government in relation to, as an example, um, eviction moratoriums and um, the increase of job seeker um, payments and so forth. So people were relatively secure during the pandemic period. What we do know though from research is that it's two to three years after a major event that we see a kick up in suicide rates and that's historically proven um, uh, not just in Australia, across the world. And so we're starting to see an increase in suicide rates now. So we only have um, reliable data out of New South Wales and Victoria and we've seen a steady and um, significant increase in both of those states over the last year. And so that we expect will extrapolate out to potentially the highest suicide rate we've had in 20 years. So um, we can't rest on our laurels. We actually have been speaking with governments about this by governments. I'm deliberate in using the S there, both federal and states, um, in needing to address the whole of government approach to suicide prevention before suicide rates started to increase. We really haven't had enough movement in that direction. And that's certainly part of our current advocacy that we haven't got any time to waste because we're heading down a very, um, uh, you know, not, not, not a good outcome in the next 12 months. Thanks, Nevis. And I think that's an important point. We really haven't seen the full outcomes of the pandemic washed through at this stage. And I think that's the case with some other indicators in alcohol and other drugs land as well. I'm going to squeeze in one more. I know we're a couple of minutes over, but I'm just going to squeeze in this last one because it's a little bit different to some of the other questions and I think potentially a little bit controversial and I'm interested in everyone's views on this one. This one's from Stephen Andrew, MP. Considering the complexities and seriousness of this issue, do you think the alcohol drinking age should be raised? And whilst young brains are still developing and the damage and given the damage it causes, coupled with getting in a motor vehicle license and all that encompasses reaching young adulthood. And I think this goes to some of those impulsivity issues that have been raised before. But I guess maybe I'll throw to you, Rose, um, for a perspective from New Zealand in relation to alcohol related harms. How do you think um, drinking age issues factor into that stuff from your perspective? Certainly raising the drinking age is one of the, the, the five plus solution that New Zealand uh, researchers advocate for, for uh, reducing alcohol related harm. I think it would need to be done in conjunction with a suite of other measures that would change our drinking culture and change the alcohol environment, like banning marketing and sports sponsorship and reducing access and reducing purchasing hours and reducing online delivery. 
So I don't think raising the drinking age alone, but in amongst a suite of other measures to reduce alcohol-related harm, yes. And just to have a perspective from across the ditch over this way, Michael Farrell, what's your view on the drinking age, given the variety of perspectives you've looked at this from over the years? Yeah, well, I think <clears throat> we see internationally that actually young people are drinking less and they're drinking later. And there's a whole range of things changing that we don't fully understand. And actually, in terms of heavy drinking, our focus is probably going to be on older adults rather Often when we look at problems, we look immediately at young people as the defining problem, but a lot of the time it's much broader than that. So um, I would be more cautious about it in relation to the policy options we have in front of us and what's actually changing. But could I just say, as we're finishing, one of the things, I mean, we know how difficult most of us have been, had direct experience of uh, a loved one committing suicide, and we know how impossibly difficult and traumatic it is in its own right. But when you add in alcohol and other drugs to it, from the family's point of view, it really, really complicates it even further. And often there's not an understanding of just the burden, not only the burden on individuals, but the burdens on families and communities around these events and our effort to try to understand them. And actually understanding them is nearly impossible at times, but for us to be aware that these complicated deaths really carry huge burdens to the whole community. I think that's a really important message to finish on this afternoon. And I'd like to thank everyone who's participated in this event, everyone who's spoken, everyone who's been on the panel, everyone who's shared their thoughts um, through questions and chat. I'm sorry we haven't got to everyone's questions, but we will keep those in mind in terms of the finalisation of this report going forward. Um, and I think some of the themes that we've got emerging are just what a complex area this is and how we need to keep working together around these issues and how there isn't one lever that we can pull that is going to be the magic bullet here. So I think that's an important message to end on as well. So thank you to everyone for joining us today. We will be posting a recording of this event on the AADC website in about a week or so, as soon as we get it tidied up. Um, we're also going to be hosting some additional events moving forward um, on a range of issues that might be of interest to this audience as well. So thank you everyone for joining us. We really appreciate your time and stick with us as we continue to um, contend with these challenging issues with our partner organisations and communities moving forward. Thank you.